Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. Thanks for listening to this real conversation. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. I'm Keith McCullough and welcome to another Real Conversation. This one's going to be a little different than prior Real Conversations. Uh, while I am familiar with the quads, I have not used a quad box yet. However, we have four, uh, you know, not in any particular order here, uh, the four of us. And, and uh, we're going to go one by one first, guys. But uh, first of all, welcome to um, Cormac, uh, who's our diamonds guy. We have Anthony, who's obviously uh, familiar to Hedgeye Nation, uh, who's our wine guy. And we have the new guy, Artem, who's going to talk about ag. So whether we're buying farms or we're buying farmland or we're buying diamonds or wine, I own one of those three, full disclosure. Um, Probably too much of it, my wife would say, but uh, the, good, the good news with that liquid acid is that I can drink it. That's the downside. Uh, I don't own the other two, so I, I'm going to spend some time, uh, just like the audience, learning uh, alongside them in terms of not only you know, the, the scarcity of the assets, but the attributes of the assets, the volatility of the assets, everything we like to talk about, uh, but how to implement that. So, um, um, so that's how I'm thinking about it, guys. But again, uh, th- uh, thank you very much for getting together uh, and agreeing to uh, get along. They're not like pushing each other's stuff, so it should be pretty easy to do. Uh, Anthony, because I'm pu- I'll push my own book. I'll go with wine first. Uh, but um, right. yeah, th- first of all, thank you. You, you sent me a, a nice bottle of a very good year. Uh, in my PVV model, you know, again, vintage, one of those Vs uh, and varietals, really important to me, uh, but a 2015 Italian wine. Thank you very much for that, and, uh, and welcome. You're very welcome. Hope you open that soon. It's a beautiful <laughs> wine. <laughs> well, I, then I have, to, I have to check out how much, uh, how, many, how many of these diamonds Cormac sent me, but the, um, uh, <laughs> he, he did send me diamonds. They're sitting here on the desk. Uh, but let's just start with... Um, you know, your opening volley, we'll try to do like five to five to seven minutes each, and then we'll have a around the around the horn. But, um, you know, maybe just like your opening volley and hitting on some of those key things, access, scarcity, volatility. These are three big things that I care about in particular when I think about wine. Absolutely. So, hey, everybody, I'm Anthony, one of the co-founders and CEO of VinoVest. So we are a wine and spirits investment platform. And what we do is we help our clients be able to invest in actual bottles and barrels of wines and whiskeys. We handle the access, we handle the procurement, the uh, authentication, and we actually store those bottles and barrels for you. And down the line, as the scarcity, access and aging takes its play on those bottles and barrels, uh, we then help our investors exit those investments to the open retail market for consumption, or you as the end client can also consume those bottles uh, and enjoy them at the end of yourself, which Keith is most likely going to do. (laughs) Um, But looking at um, those three points, right? I think when you're looking at the investment side of wine, um, the access has traditionally been very, very difficult, right? Wine is a very traditional industry with established channels of distribution, which makes some of those top wines that you see in the wine magazines or that you see topping the uh, restaurant list at crazy prices being very, very hard to obtain for somebody without any wine industry knowledge or without any prior connections. So at VinoVest, we partner directly with wineries and with distillers to be able to access those bottles upon release. And we also have access to what's called their library, 
which is sometimes when they hold back vintages from prior years in hopes of releasing them at a later point. So that's number one. Uh, number two on the volatility standpoint, uh, wine has traditionally been about a third of the volatility of the S&P 500. So that means that because the trading in the wine world, as well as the number of participants, as well as the overall structure of how the asset behaves is just a lot slower and longer dated in terms of horizon. People just like to wait many years and let father time do its thing before trading a wine. So that's why you see it being a less volatile market. And because it's based on an every single year release model, um, every single year global consumption is slightly going up for wine and you see a pretty smooth curve on the volatility side. Um, finally, when you're talking about scarcity, right? Wine is, um, you know, like many of the other assets that we're talking about, um, you know, not a commodity when we're looking at the high end side and it's a very scarce asset, right? You're looking at Napa Valley, how the real estate prices have gone through the roof. It's because they physically cannot create any more grape juice out of the plots of land that they have there. And it's becoming a more and more scarce asset also because of climate change. That's creating a lot of volatility when it comes to the average yield sizes, which relate to how many bottles of winery can produce. So put that into an example. If a winery is producing 10,000 cases of wine a year and suddenly they have a bad crop, right? They're only able to produce 5,000 cases a year. That scarcity leads to not only increased prices on that particular vintage, but then clients are going to go look at previous vintages and see if there's any on the secondary market so that they can buy up that. Um, and that sort of volatility between year to year supply and that scarcity play has also led to what we see as dynamics in the secondary market that are driving price growth. So those are the three points, uh, Keith, that you touched on that affect our market today. Awesome. We'll do a little three factor model. I didn't know how this is going to go, but that was that was perfect. And and we'll get we'll come back to you because I really want to get into how weather vol or the volatility of the weather impacts. Um, maybe inversely impacts actually your asset class, uh, more vol equals good, uh, which a lot of people would probably appreciate about volatility because most asset classes, when they see volatility uh, ramping, they don't, don't quite like that at all. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, the Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study, measuring and mapping time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data driven. So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com slash research to subscribe. Cormac, why don't we do uh, you next and let, can, if you can hit on uh, all three of those points, again, hitting on access, scarcity, and the volatility of it all. Yeah, so, so diamonds are a very interesting asset. You know, it's a, it's a very large value natural resource. People all know about diamonds, but the problem is that diamonds have always been out of reach to investors because every diamond is a little bit different and there's never been price transparency or liquidity. And therefore the friction of trading diamonds has always been, you know, uh, way off the charts. My background is I was a, you know, studied computer science and spent many years as a quantitative portfolio manager, mainly for 
Paul Tudor Jones and uh, Millennium at uh, Izzy Englander. And that background turned out to be exactly the right set of skills to create a diamond commodity. And I'm sure you've, everyone's seen it, but these are diamond standard bars. And the diamonds are inside. But the breakthrough is that these two bars are equivalent because the carat weights, the clarities, the colors are all optimized. They add up to a public standard. And the, the concept is very simple. By creating a fungible commodity for the very first time for diamonds, you can have that price discovery. You can have trading and liquidity. And last year, we had a significant breakthrough that these commodities were approved as good for delivery to settle CFTC-regulated futures and options. Uh, and we have a listing agreement, for example, that will result in futures being traded on the MJEX and on the CME. And as those futures become available, as we have ETFs, diamonds become much more like gold and that it's a, a liquid commodity that you can trade, you can buy, you can sell with very, very tight spreads. And already we've brought the spreads of diamond trading. Like if you sell your investment diamond at Sotheby's, you'll pay a 20 some percent commission. Hmm. We've gotten our friction, the, the spread on our spot market. We launched a spot market earlier this year. That's about you know 30 basis points. So we've we've divided by a, uh, two factors the the amount of, of spread and friction. Now, the concept is that once you have access to liquidity and low friction and trading products, that's going to entice the investors of the world to start to allocate to diamonds as just one more precious metal, basically. And for example, it's listed on Bloomberg right now under DIAM as a precious metal index. And the issue with diamonds is that, like wine, they're, they're very scarce. There's a, there's a great constraint on, on diamond production. And the interesting fact that people are surprised about is that there's been no new diamond mines discovered in over 20 years. The last mines were discovered up in way northern Canada in the Arctic. And since then, they haven't found any more. They found some diamonds out to sea off the southern tip of Africa and off of Botswana. And it's basically, you know, diamonds are created from these ancient volcanoes. And what happens is a river underground will run through it and wash the diamonds out to sea. So that's the only new diamonds they found. And so the, the production of diamonds has actually been diminishing by three to six percent per year. And that's expected to continue, in fact, to accelerate in declining. But at the same time, the demand for diamonds, except for very recently, but the demand for diamonds has been growing fairly consistently at about 3 to 5% per year. So you have a rising demand, falling supply, and that's a recipe for price inflation. And in fact, between 2020 and, and 2022, the prices rose about 40%. They've since come back. So since 2020, uh, they're up about 13%. What we expect, though, is that as investors start to build a position, and especially as the ETF becomes available, 
for example, we have filed an ETF uh, for to list on the New York Stock Exchange. That's going to take a while to get approved. But once that does, and when we have a national market price available from the CM, uh, CME listing, that instantly unlocks allocations from pensions, endowments, sovereign wealth funds. Of course, right now we have a lot of family offices. We have about 5,000 customers that have built positions. But we expect that institutional demand to have a very significant impact on diamond prices, especially when there's a lack of, of new supply. Um, so that dynamic is, is the key driver of demand, falling supply, institutional allocations being uh, possible. The second thing that's that's a little bit interesting, it's a little what we call the moonshot, is that inside the bar is a wireless computer chip. You can see it, it's that white layer. And that chip, we built it to provide auditing, for example. If BlackRock owns this, they can audit it in the vault. And it also provides authentication. If I hand this to you, Keith, you can authenticate the bar and, and prove that it's real. But most importantly, this chip stores a blockchain token. Huh. And we have the world's only regulatory license for a commodity token. And so when you own this, it sits in a vault like Brinks. And the moment it's in the vault, their wireless sensor detects the commodity and it delivers a, a blockchain token huh. to the owner. Once you own that token, you can sell it. That's what people sell on our on our spot market. Turns out that is the key breakthrough uh, to enable a global commodity currency. And you can imagine a currency that comes out of a blockchain native commodity is not a security, and it's actually not a virtual currency, which is kind of the latest laws from the IRS. So one big use case that's really exclusive to diamond commodities is that it can create this global uh, currency product, which, which is fully asset-backed. Hmm. You asked about volatility. So the volatility of diamonds is extraordinarily low. It's about 3.8%, um, which is, you know, half of what gold is, is or, it's, you know, half gold, a little bit less than half of gold, uh, but also the correlation of diamonds as a as a former quant i've never seen another asset that has zero correlation to its peers gold silver platinum diamonds have nearly zero correlation and they have near zero correlation to stocks and bonds so if you go back to the four or five uh you know his, recent historical financial crises diamonds really have outperformed uh, gold very very substantially which is the normal hedge and uh, safety. And so those are the key aspects of, of diamonds. That's really cool. Uh, these, so these, um, I have these as well. Um, are these in particular, so these are, uh, I guess they have this integrated wireless technology in it. Are these the two, you know, are these the two sizes that you'd get? Or the, you know, are these two things, I mean, I'm assuming they're, uh, this one's worth more than this one? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So. Uh, the challenge we had, it's all based on statistics and math and optimization. We use, we incorporate about 92% of all the different sizes, shapes of diamonds. Yep. All the different carat weights, colors. And when we produce a commodity, we have, we have no opinion on diamond prices. We've used automated market making 
to buy all the diamonds transparently on an exchange. And so we have to bid on 90% of all the different diamond types. That's over 16 million different types of diamonds. Wow. And to create a statistical sample, we had to break it up because we can't buy, uh, you know, giant samples of every possible type of diamond. So the coins have diamonds that are 0.23 to 0.75 carats. So they're all smaller diamonds. And the bars have 0.76 to 2.05 carat diamonds. So you can see they're all larger. And when we build these, we have to buy about $15 million worth of diamonds at a time to prove that we have a statistically valid sample. When we make the bars, we have to buy about uh, $65 million mm-hmm. worth of diamonds at a time. So we had to break it up. Yeah, that's, that's um, I mean, talk about innovation. I mean, I mean, there, there's such a lack of um, education on these things. I mean, so thank you, for first of all, for, for all of you for providing that. I mean, at a base level, nobody should be investing in anything until they, you know, get educated on supply, demand, scarcity, uh, the volatility of it all, um, et cetera. So that, that was, um, we're going to come back to you, but um, thank you for that. Uh, let's just go to Artem. Um, this is the one that I know the least about because I'd met Cormac prior. Uh, of course, I'm from Northern Ontario in Canada and uh, I'm Irish, so I have a fair amount of uh, kind of like, uh, I think I know some, some stuff about farmland, but I've never bought any. Absolutely, Keith, uh, good to be on your show. Uh, it's been really interesting listening to Cormac, to Anthony. So there's definitely some similar themes in farmland. And just to give a bit of background first on how I got into it, uh, you know, you mentioned Ontario. I'm Canadian, so I worked for Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. Oh, really? I worked for Sprout Resource, and that's where I got my early chops in the natural assets and real assets investment. And one of the things that fascinated me was that farmland um, really captures a lot of the needs that long-term investors have. We talked already about diversification. So farmland does provide that. Uh, in the same regard as we talked about wine and diamonds, there's virtually zero correlation to most of the asset classes. It has great long-term returns. In the last 30 years, it returned the farmland index 10.5%, outperforming equities, gold, bonds, real estate, and doing it also with uh, low volatility, not quite as low as diamonds. That's phenomenal, Cormac. That was really interesting to learn, but farmland was 6.6% volatility in the last 30 years. And when we look at performance during inflation, which is very important right now. And during recessions, farmland has historically been a great hedge against those uh, those macro events. Um, and I was surprised to learn back in 2016 that virtually no one had farmland in their portfolios. And indeed, when I talked to people in the early days of starting farm together, so this was 2018, one of the reactions that I would get was, wow, how exotic. And it, it just blows my mind that that is indeed exotic because our civilization <laughs> started when agriculture started and we all eat and we'll have to drink water. <laughs> so it's uh, um, a bizarre, bizarre situation that we're changing. Um, and so today at Farm Together, you can invest in farms in US for now. And we're talking about almond farms. Uh, we're talking about corn, soybean, pistachios, walnuts, um, citruses, you name it. Uh, you can do it with as little as $15,000. And uh, we encourage people to build a diversified portfolio because diversification matters. Uh, but a lot of the themes in farmland are easy to grasp. 
uh, on the supply side, you have constantly decreasing amount of farmland. United States, which is the largest farmland market, three trillion out of the 10 trillion total, loses millions of acres. It's due to climate change, is due to urbanization, is due to labor issues. So there is a disappearance of farmland that is alarming. On the demand side, you have growing population, improving diets due to increase in income. Uh, you also have um, this really fantastic long-term trend of improvements in how we do farming. So since 1947, we've seen about a 3.2% increase in yields per acre. And this is due to a variety of innovations from better fertilizer to uh, better irrigation to better genomics that all flow at the end of the day to you, the owner of land. Um, and in the US, what's happening is that about 40%, uh, so about two thirds of farmland is expected to change hands in the next 20 years. And this is driven by the aging of the farmer. The average age of farm is 60. A lot of kids don't want to farm. Uh, you face increasing competition from overseas and domestically. And so farms are getting bigger, more efficient, and they're looking for more creative ways uh, to capitalize, to ensure generational transition. And that's where we found a niche. So today we have over 200, uh, approaching 200 million in assets under management, so about 180 right now. Um, looking to cross that 200 mark soon. And it's mostly also retail investors, family offices, but increasingly we're seeing a lot of interest from investment advisors and institutions. So do you have to, um, as opposed to, you know, you know, visually at least uh, incorporating something with the wine and with the diamonds in my hand, um, do you go buy a farm from a, from a seller, you own it outright or you take a stake? And then how does that, you know, if I, if I were to invest 15K, like how does that translate? Yeah, it's quite simple. So typically we will buy a farm that's for sale or we will partner with a farm or farming family that is looking to expand their operations. Okay. Um, we will then rent it out to a farmer or contract it out. And you as an investor, you own a share in an LLC. And that LLC generates income through rent or harvest. And at the end of a hold period, which is typically 10 years, we will sell the farm and distribute the proceeds to you. So there's a lot of similarities with uh, real estate, with timber infrastructure. Um, really, we take care of everything agronomically, financially, legally, and you just invest and forget. And does that, um, is that like using the minimum 15K, does that get diversified across different farms or am I hostage to one? So that one right now is just one farm. It, yeah. If you have 50K, you could invest in our fund. So we do have a fund product as well. Right now it will uh, soon have four properties diversified across crops and geographies. Unlike our deals, which are a 10 year hold because farms are a long-term investment, uh, the fund has a two year lockup. So okay. you can immediately get more of that diversification. And part of our mission is to continue using tech and improving operations so we can accept lower and lower checks. So just as you can imagine, having a lot of investors, you want to take care of the smallest investor just as well as you do the largest investor. And right now, just infrastructure-wise, we're not there yet. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, do you have a target? Is there a targeted yield for, you know, in terms of the annual income or no? Absolutely. So depending on the type of farm you invest in, there's two types, raw crops, so the corn soybean, which is kind of the um, institutional grade type, bond, 
a target returns net of fees of about 7% and 2-3% net cash yield. On the more risky but more lucrative side, you have permanent rocks. So this would be your tree nets, for example. Those have a target return of about 10% net and cash yields that start from 4-5% and sometimes in the later years, especially if it's a development, can be as high as 10-20% net cash Hi, flow. Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager-in-chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40-plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high-conviction long and short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. And tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Good introduction from all three of you. And and, uh, in a way... uh, in a way, everything is absolutely different, but in, in many more ways, it's 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 all the same. Like when you, you, you try to, and maybe let's just start with that. Like the, what is the biggest challenge to get somebody like me, my family office, to say yes? Um, is it 15K a minimum? Is it just, okay, it's not Q's, uh, which, you know, I, I would go back to Artem's point. I mean, and there's there's quite the, uh, I forget what word you use, but, you know, when people start, uh, what, what word did you use for something that's been exotic, with Exotic, I think. What did you say? Oh, yeah, it's, uh, I said that people think it's exotic, but it's exotic, actually the exotic, but, asset yeah, class. But being long uh, some crypto coin that has no regulation uh, or nothing at all behind it is is not exotic. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing to watch. But, um, like, it, is that? Like, maybe take a shot at that. Um, you know, I think you probably have the lowest entry price, Anthony. And, and by the way, uh, Cormac, if you disagree with that, let me know. But, I mean, is... Is 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 there sticker shock? Is it experience? What it what is it? I think uh, I can't hear uh, Anthony. Yes, oh, there you go. I was okay. muted. I can hear. So yeah. on our platform at Vinovest, on our marketplace, you can buy a bottle of wine for under a hundred dollars. Right. Our managed products start at a thousand dollars. So very low barrier to entry, all things considered. Um, and I think that's not the biggest sticking point, right? I think to Artem's point. Investing in wine, investing in whiskey, you know, in diamonds, farmland is not really in the public consciousness the same way, you know, the a Dogecoin just captured the public's attention. Right? <laughs> it doesn't make the sexy headlines because it doesn't have the sexy 500 percent in three days return. Right. All of our asset classes to, you know, for better or for worse, have very low volatility. They're very steady. They're very long term. Right. Those things are for a patient investor. And I think in today's sort of media cycle, we want the most exciting, sexy now type of headline. So for us, it's a big education piece, right? Yep. When investors come to us, they probably know of someone in their circle who has a massive wine cellar and have some sort of idea that wine gets better with age, right? That's an, an old adage for a region. But when we get into the education part, and I think what we really like to do at VinoVS is really start with the economics, right? We have decreasing supply, every single bottle that gets consumed out in the world leads to a decreasing supply of that particular bottle, right? So after you enjoy that 2015 Sasakaya Keith, there's one less Sasakaya 2015 in the world. <laughs> and every other holder of that of that bottle will be thanking you, 
right? Yeah. They're like, hey, supply goes down. And then the next thing is that the asset actually changes, right? The taste of a wine when it's one years old is going to be different when it's 10 years old, when it's 20 years old, right? And our, our palates have been developed to appreciate those older wines and, and put a premium at that, right? Either to not wanting to wait 10 years and taste that wine or just due to the actual changes in the chemical flavor profile of that wine. So those are the two things that we really try to educate our clients on and abstracting away, you know, the regions for the varietals, the vintages, the name, the brand, right? All of that plays into effect, but at a base level, it's supply and demand, it's time. And as time goes on, there's going to be less and less of that wine because of global consumption. And that's really the cornerstone that we believe in. And that's what I think really helps investors who many of them, you know, we have investors all around the country, some from countries that don't even drink. They believe in the fundamentals yep. of wine and whiskey because of that. Yeah, I think that that's easy to understand for all three. I mean, a good example, and for the record, um, I, I am not invested with any of these three gentlemen and or their businesses. That doesn't mean that it won't change uh, right after we're done with this conversation, by the way. Uh, Cormac's a good example where, where, you know, that's one where I've not bought you know, I've not bought into any Diamond Standard product, but now it's sitting here looking me in the face again, asking me why. And I own way too much gold, uh, enough silver, and no uh, diamond exposure, which to me would be the same asset allocation. Um, but on that, like, you know, I, I guess, a, full disclosure too, Daryl Jones, for example, Anthony, uh, it, invested in VinoVest, and then he'd start to come to me every other week and tell me, hey, do you know that this thing just doesn't go down? And, and that's, that's one way to talk people into it, right? It doesn't go down. <laughs> so that's, I, I think getting your toe in the, in, you know, I have my toe more, more in the water in terms of my investment in wine in the aggregate um, you know, than I'd like to admit, like I said. But, but on diamonds, Cormac, is, it, is there a sticker shock? Is there regulation? Like, what would get somebody like me to just say, nah, I'm going to pass? Well, there there is a price hurdle. So the right. coin right now, these are forty seven hundred fifty bucks or so. Okay. And we don't we don't set that price. We look it up. We see it every morning on Bloomberg, and that's what they're trading at. The benefit and the, and the really big distinction with with a commodity is that these are not securities, so we can sell them to anybody, no accreditation, and you can sell it back twenty four hours a day. So once you have your coin, if you decide I want to adjust my position, you just list it on the spot market, and now you have instant liquidity. Yep. Um, so, but like VinoVest, a big challenge is education. And with diamonds, we have an uphill battle because there's a lot of misconceptions about diamonds. You know, people think, oh, De Beers controls the market. They don't. It was De Beers was broken up 20 some years ago. <laughs> uh, they they saw that movie Blood Diamonds. They think that diamonds have some kind of a negative connotation. They don't. They've lifted entire countries of Africa out of poverty and created, you know, world-class educational systems, you know, creates tens of thousands of jobs and, and economic substance. Um, or they think the prices are manipulated. And mm. our prices are all transparent. They're, we're, we are regulated. So we have as I mentioned, a regulatory license. We're audited by Deloitte. So our key was to establish that credibility. Initially, that got a lot of interest from family offices, and that's by far our largest category of clients. And a lot of them are afraid of stocks or bonds crashing. 
and they wanted something that's tangible that they could they could actually hold. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's happened now is now that we've you know we're, we expect to pass this year about three hundred million of of total diamond commodities out into the market. What's happened is that because we have a regulatory approval as a commodity, we've now got a lot of interest from Wall Street, and we have a lot of asset managers and and ETF sponsors and futures brokers. And for example, we just signed a distribution agreement with the largest bullion distributor that covers Merrill Lynch, UBS, Fidelity, Goldman Sachs. They provide all the gold to the wealth management departments of those firms. And now they can add, uh, they can make diamonds available. That's called GBI Uh is the name of that company. As I mentioned, we filed an ETF uh, in partnership with the New York Stock Exchange. And we have two major underwriters, two of the money center banks have agreed to underwrite that. So we passed the new product committee, the underwriting committee of major, major banks. And so for us, we're a little different from the VinoVest and and the and farmland is we can very quickly create ETFs, futures and institutional products. And that's the channel that we go down. And we're going to we're, we're retracting from selling to consumers. In fact, I think by the end of this year, we'll no longer sell our commodities directly to consumers. They'll buy them through bullion distributors or security sponsors. Yeah, and and they'll buy <laughs> as soon as I start signaling in real time alerts to whip around your ETFs. They'll be doing it that way too. I mean, there's there's going to be, and that's a big thing. I mean, it's not like the diamond market. Um, you know, the the value of it hasn't been established. I believe it's larger than silver and platinum combined. Is is that fair yeah. or no? About one point two trillion. That's the above yeah. ground value of diamonds, and there's about. 30 billion of new production. So it's, you know, similar to gold, a 2% stock to, to flow ratio. Yeah. So quite low. So uh, Artem, you kind of have the same, it's interesting, you both, you and Cormac, both went to the, fam- you said family office multiple times. I mean, it make, makes a lot of sense. I mean, they're going to want to diversify by nature. They're not, you wouldn't have a family office if you're a spy monkey that thinks that all you need to allocate to is stocks and bonds in a 60-40 with Qs and spies. So, you know, these are the people that are going to understand it, right? But you have a higher entry point. point. You have, would, would, they, would people say that you're, um, well, there's the minimum, 15K is the highest. And would people say that there's more cyclicality that they're concerned about? Clearly, the volatility that you cited is way lower than anything that they currently own. The headwinds we face in um, attracting people to investing in farmland right now are mostly educational. Um, a lot of people still haven't heard about it, and there's a lot of misconceptions as okay. well. Um, some of them are, well, uh, don't farmers always lose money? And it's like, no, <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't have anything to eat. And no one would be going into this if this was constantly a money losing business. If, in fact, if you look at the USDA numbers, the net income is constantly positive and 10, 20, 30% net income margin for the last how many years? Um, isn't there always some weather issue? Uh, um, yes, of course, weather is a big issue and it's also a big opportunity. And that's part of the um, the value that we provide underwriting for weather and underwriting for water. 
a lot of our farms speaking about water in California. And boy, that's uh, that there's you know double the misconceptions about farmland, also about California. California is going to run out of water. California is going to get flooded. California is going to get forest fires. And some people just uh, you know don't like California for uh, political <laughs> reasons. But California is a 50 billion ag economy. If it was a country, it would be the sixth largest ag producer in the world. There's no getting away from California. It is an absolute incredible state that has built a, a world wonder of waterworks that has some of the most productive innovative farmers in the world that has incredible infrastructure to get the products to the global markets. Um, some other things that uh, you know people ask us about is, well, isn't all farmland now already owned by corporations and institutions? And that's again, complete misconception. 98% of farms are owned by families. It's still very much a family affair. I think everyone has heard that Bill Gates is the largest farmland owner, but he only owns 150,000 acres or something like that. And US has 890 million acres at the moment. So it's a 0. 0.000, it's a fraction. Like it's just US feeds the world, feeds the world reliably, which we have seen is really important with you know, the war in Ukraine. Um, so that's not true. Uh, the sort of this fact that corporations own everything. Uh, we face um, misconceptions around uh, returns and volatility, which you know we just address uh, as an asset class. It's a very stable market, but you do have to diversify because individual farms absolutely can uh, can face idiosyncratic issues. Um, so I'd say yeah, mostly education, which is why I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, the um, well, I mean the the one you know endemic difference b between investing in farmland as you described it and wine and or diamonds is that you have a yield, so you you have income investors. So it's much yeah, it's 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 not dissimilar by the way from investing in real estate. If you go back to the prior, um, well, what really established real estate as an asset class or REITs was a recession, right? Because people are like, oh, we're going to have inflation, the Fed's going to print, but we're in a recession, so voila, coming out of 0102, REITs becomes, you know, REITs became an asset class with a yield, right? I mean, so um, that that's how I would position it. I mean, if, if, or certainly that's how I'd think about it as an investment alternative, is that, you know, there's that aspect. I get the yield and I get the inflation, right? So, um, but with but Anthony and, 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 and Cormac, I mean, you guys have liquidity, which is different. I think that's important. I think Cormac, uh, your point um, on 30 basis points of friction is pretty damn good. Um, so maybe get into that on the, because you guys have more of the transaction and, and the argument people would make against gold, which I hear all the time, there's no yield, right? Um, you know, there's no yield, Anthony, in, in your bottle of wine unless you have it tonight and you'll have, you'll yield yourself a nice evening. I mean, there's a lot of bullshit, right? I mean, but, like, how, do you do you deal with? I'll let Cormac go first because I think that that's actually. You said a twenty percent vig on trading in and out of diamonds. If you didn't, you know, in the in the in the in the in the past, I mean, that's brutal. Yeah, and that's that's the Sotheby's you know model is is, and that's the vast majority of investment diamonds are these big blue, pink, yellow diamonds. Um, that's what families have invested in historically, because that's called you know investment grade. But the key for us was was creating an investment index and in everything else that is used in the yeah. in the jewelry uh, industry. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's a that's a, that's a really good one. I mean, and and I'd assume that uh, would you assume that the volatility of it, and I'll let Anthony get into this as well. Um, 
It's endemic to any market that once you lower the commission and, and get the volume going, that you're going to have more volatility. Now, you, you, you rattled off one of the lowest volatility numbers I've ever heard, Cormac. So would you assume that we get something? Like gold volatility right now is like 12% on a 30-day basis. I like that. 12% is not like crypto, which is like 80. Uh, <laughs> 80 vol. Yeah, so absolutely. As, as you get futures, if you have leverage, um, inevitably, there's going to be a lot more volatility, and I think inevitably, you know, liquidity correlates everything to to some degree. So diamonds have been left alone for decades yeah. as a you know large you know in part of that time monopoly provided commodity, and that created a lot of that long term stability. But even rest, recently, there's a, a certain seasonality. Right now, we're in you know August is historically the the low point of, of diamond prices as you go into the, the holiday season. But like gold, the job of, of a hard asset is not to create yield. Right. It's to create stability, a hedge against inflation, a store of wealth, uh, something that most importantly cannot go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. You know, your gold, sh- your gold holdings can never go bankrupt. It can always be liquid. And what we look at is what happened to, when gold was financialized. And that really, the key instance was in 2002, was the first gold ETF, yep. the, the um, GLD by State Street. From that launch, the holdings of gold by investors increased by about $300 billion over the next 20 years. And the first eight years, those, those holdings increased by 40% per year compounded. And that corresponded with about a 5x increase in the price of gold. And that's what we really look at as the key inflection point, is when the investment demand gets unlocked because of that spread, that liquidity. A, yes, the volatility will go up. The correlation may not go up until that position building period is over. But we think there could be a very, very significant price impact. More recently, we saw it with uranium. Mm-hmm. And, and that there were two uranium funds launched in 2022, I think, or 2021, yep. by Sprott, Artem's former uh, alma mater, and Yellowcake in, in the UK. And those were both exchange-listed uh, vehicles for the very first time for uranium, and uranium over the following nine months spiked by about 70%. So institutional demand can really drive commodity prices, and that's that's, I think, the key driver that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, Global X Uranium ETF, URA, I think everyone knows that, or at least our, our um, subscribers know that I own it. Um, it. An ETF obviously makes this a lot simpler for those that have you know, lower entry price, you know, kind of like issues with not starting with five grand, 25 grand, et cetera. But, um, you know, again, our audience here definitely has that and a lot more, so I'm not concerned with that. Um, on the volatility question, Anthony, like I can, I'm assuming you're citing like the history of the asset class and the volatility of it using LiveX or something like that. That's what we would look at. When you look at the, correct me if I'm wrong on that first, and, and secondly, when you look at bottles or, you know, kind of like um, 
factor exposures, I'd call them, uh, whether it be Bordeaux, uh, Bordeaux of a certain vintage or Brunellos, Barolos, et cetera, of a certain vintage versus something that's you know lower price point. Are you seeing vol pick up? Like, is there is there more price fluctuation as the economy slows or anything like that? Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of Sector Pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Yeah, Keith, so to answer your first question, we also do use the LiveX 1000 as yep. our broadest measure of the benchmark when we're looking at wine performance. And over the past two decades, uh, annual vol has been around four or five percent. Which is so awesome. Quite low as well. Um, and when we're breaking it up on a regional basis, so the LiveX 1000, uh, it's composed similarly to how the S&P 500 is, right? It's taking the key uh, most traded wines that we see in the market, primarily Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, and now in recent years, more of Napa Valley and, and Tuscany as well, um, and breaking down the most important producers. And then what they do is they take a 10-year rolling average of their of their last 10 vintages, right? So right now it would be 2022 all the way back to 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do see regional volatility on that on that basis, right? Because some some years could be great for a certain region, could be terrible for another, right? For example, in 2020 Napa Valley, many producers didn't make any wine because of the wildfires. Whereas in Bordeaux, no problems whatsoever. So um, at VinoVest, we also do consider a diversified approach. Um, and wanting to give you exposure to not only different regions and different producers, but also different vintages. That also allows you to be able to exit positions over the course of years and be able to rebalance and create some yield What in what is traditionally considered a pretty long-term you know, 10-year hold, 15-year hold asset. And when you're talking about you know, low price point, high price point bottles, we do see the highest volatility happen at those high price point bottles because um, similar to what Cormac says, right? Those big pink blue diamonds that are going for tens of millions of dollars, there's only a few of them in the world, right? So it's not a lot of price discovery, not a lot of fungibility, and they're typically sold at auction where there's very few buyers, right? Some billionaire could just wake up and decide he needs to have it for his family. Same thing with a bottle of 1945 Petrus. Maybe there's only 10 bottles left in the world. Someone could realize, all right, I just need this bottle, right? Or maybe a, a very old vintage bottle. That's that's this person's birth year, right? Or anniversary or some sort of sentimental value yeah. that has nothing to do with the intrinsic market value. That's where you see a lot of volatility happening in this sort of, I'd say, $15,000 a bottle and up price range. But the majority of wines that we work with from an investment standpoint are within the, I'd say, you know, hundred to a thousand dollars per bottle price range where there is decent volume, there is fungibility. Yeah. As long as you keep the storage and the provenance and the authenticity all standard, which is what Vest we're creating the standard for as well, that leads to a lot more trust, transparency, and encourages transactions. Yeah, that's critical. I mean, if you're any any legit wine investor is going to want to have storage nailed down, they're going to want to have the credibility of the of the liquid assets, you know, uh, you know, something that they can trust. I mean, that's 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 pretty obvious to me. I mean, I, I don't I don't think I've ever lost money. It's, it's you can lose bottles of wine in a case 
or you can lose maybe a case here or there, but you're not going to have like a drawdown like you're going to have in queues or in you know profitless tech stocks or whatever. There's like a there's so much to talk about um, on that front. But you also and and maybe just putting this back to Artem uh, and 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 asking you first, Anthony, weather volatility that ruins a vintage makes like if I'm I'll, I'll only invest in 2013, 2015, 2016 uh, Brunellos. If there's a bad year, then that makes those three years worth more. I mean, so my weather volatility, like I said at the beginning, I was going to come back to it. That's actually an asset. Um, you know, I'm assuming that that on the yield and the prices in, in farmland, we're going to have some dynamics that are somewhat similar. After all, you know, wine is you know an agricultural product. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's absolutely right. It's a double-edged sword because, on one hand, one vintage may suffer, but to your point, it's you know, call up brother, sister vintages for the same winery, those are going to go up in price, right? Yeah. Because regardless if it's a good year, bad year, the demand for that wine year after year is consistent, right? So we saw the same thing with the Napa vintage, right? When news broke out that some wine wineries were just not making wine at all, they started releasing their library vintages, right? Their, their 19s, their 18s, maybe their 10s. Yeah. And were able to you know, that's a great way for wineries, right? That's their bank, right? That's their own asset that they can be able to release back into the market. And when news of scarcity comes out, that's what happens, right? And that's uh, what we see and why it's very important for us to also preach diversification between vintages for producers where our clients really are, are betting heavily on. Yeah, how would you address that, Artem, on your side? Because again, if you come in and you got one and it's in Vermont, and what just happened in Vermont happened in Vermont. I mean, it was just there, and it, it was devastating. I mean, really, for some of the farmers there. Whereas those in Vermont weren't, that weren't devastated had massive yields. Um, you know, again, same state, but it's very similar to what I just said on, on the wines. Yeah, it's a great question because you have weather events that can absolutely um, damage a farm, rarely destroy a farm completely. Um, in our farms, if it's row crops, it's literally you know, full dirt. And so, yes, you can lose a harvest that year, but you will have insurance. And we as landowners, we get paid upfront. So we have very little risk on the raw crop side. On the permanent crop side, of course, the risk is higher and that's why the target returns are higher. You can have floods, droughts, fires, you name it. Um, but that's what we get paid for is to underwrite for those risks and to properly manage them. And same as with Anthony, where if that vineyard has a bad year, and hopefully it's not a vineyard because we do have two vineyards, um, <laughs> but the rest of the industry will, will benefit. And so I would say a more near-term example for us, again, comes back to California water. Right now, the California reservoirs are full with water, but all California is just a geography that will have droughts. And it goes back hundreds and thousands of years. That's totally okay. But what you want to do is to invest in farms that will have good water. And in fact, not only will your farms survive and thrive when other farms that have um, worse water will have to go out of business or have a bad year, you could even bank that water or sell that water. So you are investing not just in the farms, you now have a third source of income, which is water. Mm -hmm. And you're investing that way in water as well, which is a big other market we haven't even touched on. But right now, we've seen that happen over and over again with our investors, with our farms, that we're able to invest in water as, a, as another asset class. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I like the demographic component of, of, of your, your asset class as well. I mean, with boomers, farmers that are of that generation, as, our, as my partner Neil Howe would say, the fourth turning is here. Uh, with two-thirds of farmers sellers yep. and not many people institutional buyers, it, you know, Blackstone's B-REIT didn't just come out of nowhere. They got, had a lot of capital and, and they were buying from, a lot, you know, from, from natural sellers. So that, that's, that's a big one. Um, just maybe the last 10 minutes here, guys, and, and Artem, I'll give it to you first, because I think um, Cormac and Anthony, they have a technological solution that's, that's right there. Like, I mean, access, you know, solving for a lot of the reasons why you have not been able to invest in these things, they've had a technological solution. And, and they, if, look, look at what Anthony's built. I mean, it's, it's amazing uh, in a short period of time, like how quickly he's gotten people to use, like, modern tools like what's sitting in front of their screen to, to get comfortable with this. Where are you? Like, do you need more AUM to, to introduce, like, techno, like, to have an ETF, to do whatever? Not that an ETF is the big technology, by the way. I didn't mean, didn't mean that. <laughs> so we, we have quite a bit of tech already. Um, we, on the sourcing side, uh, we use a technology we built internally called Terra, which allows us to scalably find, underwrite, analyze, and manage farms. And that is very, very important because okay. one, one of the reasons we have not seen institutional interest in the space yet to the size that it deserves is because the farmland market is very fragmented. Most farms are less than $10 million in value. And so for Blackstone or BlackRock, in order to build something that moves the needle for them, they need billions of dollars. And that means they need to buy hundreds of farms and they just physically cannot do it. Right. Uh, some of your listeners, you guys here might have heard of a company called Open Door that has created an engine kind of like Zillow to scalably analyze and underwrite houses. We are building the same for farmland. On the demand side, we have another piece of tech we call Mercury, which is just a really slick, easy to use, and convenient tool for you to analyze different farms that we're putting on the platform. You can watch a webinar, you can download investment documents, you can link your bank accounts, your accreditation. As we make it very easy to just sign the documents, uh, wire the funds, invest with, in literally a few minutes you could own land. And then we provide a lot of tools for you to also see how the farms are performing, receive updates, videos, photos from the farms, stories from the ground. And so as an investor, you have that financial aspect, but you also have that emotional aspect, mm -hmm. knowing that you're helping to feed the planet, you're helping farmers grow our food, oftentimes grow it more sustainably, organically. Um, and so that's, if you check out farmtogether.com, we very proud of our design team. We get a lot of compliments on just how easy it is to use and to own a piece of land. Yeah, in preparation for this, that part, um, that part I did check out. I have not executed yet, uh, but uh, I'll, I'll let you know. And when we have you back, we're gonna, we're going to talk probably about something like that anyway. But um, Cormac, on your, I mean, you're, this is this is so cool. Like what you've done. At, do, do you think that the cool factor? has helped you get to, I mean, that's a lot of people. If you said 5,000 uh, different family offices or um, you know, investors ha have bought in, did it have to be you know, blockchain? Does it, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's not like AI, let's just not even go there, but like, is, that, is that core? Is, do you need to have that? The, yeah, in fact, we do. I'd rather avoid it, obviously, if we could, but the, then the question becomes, what are the diamonds in there? Right. Where do they come from? How can you prove that these eight and these eight add up 
And so all that information needs to travel with the commodity forever. Okay. And that's why we put the computer chip in there because it stores all of the certificates from GIA. But to all of our technology is mainly built in the in this uh, to ensure transparency in the automated market making, the optimization, and the uh, the fact that every bar is the same. So we publish everything on a blockchain, which you can never change. Mm-hmm. Once it's been published, you can't go back and edit. Uh, out any any uh, any falsehood. Is there an auditing? So, uh, sorry, to interrupt. Is there an auditor for that? Like that actually looks at each one of these things and says, "Okay, I agree." A little auditor called Deloitte. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. So that I mean that was a big um, challenge to get an auditor. They're very reluctant to have anything to do with blockchain, and obviously we were able to get a world class auditor because of that institutional support and the fact that everything we do is regulator supervised. Good. And but the breakthrough is once we had that all that information on the blockchain, the next step was simply to use that for the trading. So the blockchain enables this incredible liquidity where whether you're holding spot, you know, for yourself, whether you're uh, trading to a futures, an option, an ETF or a digital asset, they all are integrated for that transaction. So you don't have different marketplaces breaking up the liquidity of, of the underlying asset. They all trade together. Mm-hmm. And unlike unlike the farmland or the wine, there's no expertise. We're not choosing the diamonds. The computer must buy all diamonds. And so th- there's not the um, expert, uh, like a portfolio manager that you're taking a bet on the key for us is making sure that every single commodity is the same. And so what you're investing in is the global demand for diamond. Yeah. Just like in, with gold, you, you're investing in the global demand for gold. And, you know, uh, the demographics and the supply and demand are what we look to as what's going to impact that, that demand. Yeah, where the, this demand, like for somebody like me, is going to go and somebody that will most likely drive some demand because um, our install base is big enough to do that. I'm not trying to like big time anyone, but like if we're if there's an ETF and it's part of an asset class like precious metals that we're long right now and we have like line of sight on a real acceleration, then we'll just look for every way we can to manifest that. So, for example, if I for right now, I'm not long platinum. There are you know, price volume volatility reasons for that. But if I compared that against the diamond ETF and those attributes were better and I chose that, that would be a decision. But it's also within the context of the, the asset class that I'm trying to get exposure to. So this is, thank you for, for, for all that you're, 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 you're cranking on because uh, you know, the, world, the world needs this stuff. Um, the world already has this stuff. The world already has you know, plenty of diamonds and, and lots of vino. Um, but maybe to, you know, it's, I'm running out of time here. On that, um, Anthony, I started with you and maybe I can, um, end with you. Uh, the technology question to you, like I, I'm familiar with, you know, most familiar with, with what you do, but how about the competition? Is technology catching up? Are you pulling away? Like how excited are you about the opportunity? Yeah, the wine industry is extremely traditional. Right? It, it starts in the ethos where it starts with the land. It starts with doing as little to the land as possible. And also it's, it's very familial, right? Most winemakers inherited from their fathers, their grandfathers, and tradition was respected. And I think sometimes to a fault when you come to the actual business side of the market. Um, and I think when it comes to 
actual selection of wines, right? We have things like Bordeaux first growths, right? When we think of the top Bordeaux in the world, people think of five names, and it's because the French government instituted a classification back in 1855, right? And those wines are now still the most expensive five wines in Bordeaux <laughs> because of that classification. So safe to say, in terms of the industry, um, there's a lot of room for technology and innovation to be able to better the lives of not only folks making the wine, but the people consuming the wine. And I think firstly, that comes into data transparency, right? When folks recommend a wine, they just say, I like it, right? We can't do that at VinoVest, not just that. So we go from critic scores to social media sentiment to analyzing weather patterns, working with third-party satellite data companies, analyzing previous vintages, looking at both what is available publicly with auction data, as well as marketplace data, as well as off-market data. And we've created a machine learning model that helps us be able to analyze all of these trends, all of these data points in conjunction with our team, which includes some of the most brilliant wine minds in the world. You know, you may have heard of the Master Sommelier exam, which there are, have historically only been less than 300. So even a more rare designation to attain than being a Nobel Prize winner. Um, it's something that um, we're really proud to have that sort of combination of human expertise and technology at VinoVest, you know, honoring still that time, that tradition, that carnal knowledge that you do need in the wine and whiskey world, but also enhancing it with what we can enhance with today. And that's what my background coming from technology sought to do as someone who was, you know, a, a, a newcomer to the wine world only a few <laughs> years ago. Yeah, I love that. You didn't even, you didn't start with being uh, the wine guy and Cormac didn't start by being the diamond guy. And well, actually, Artem, we got to say that you were closest to the closest to the fire, I guess, on your asset class. So um, I just want to thank all of you. I mean, this is a pre preliminary for a lot of people. It was a great you know, starting point in education. We, of course, could uh, and maybe we will. Maybe we'll do like a seminar or conference or something together, like where we can you know, get into the whole. Uh, actually, Anthony, you can provide the uh, you can sponsor the uh, you can sponsor the cocktail hour. Yeah, the beverage is uh, covered. And I don't think that I don't think Cormac's gonna be handing out these things like one by one. But um, but uh, just to you, Keith. <laughs> we'll, we'll provide the location. The yep. beautiful local. Oh, yeah, we could, do, we could do that. On a beautiful Vermont farm, I would love that. See, these these are things. These aren't cues. These aren't you know, crypto whatevers. This is uh, this is real stuff. And you guys have done a really good job uh, getting to where you're at. So uh, good luck in the future, and and thanks for spending some time with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. I mean, how good is that? I mean, learning about alternative investments, this is how people that actually make money make more money. You, again, preserve and protect your hard-earned capital so you can find unique ways with low volatility to, again, compound those returns. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye 
is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at hedgeye.com slash Terms of Service.